This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, MD Advantage, UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 at WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and answers all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today's show is being taped, so we are not taking live questions. But if you have any questions about today's program, just email me at info at alessimd.com. Also, if you only get to hear parts of today's program, please don't hesitate to download the podcast The podcasts are found on iTunes under Healthy Rounds Podcast. Today I have a great show. This is a new show, even though it's been taped, and it's because I've been trying to get this guest on for a while. My guest today is going to be Dr. Bree Andamariam. Dr. Andamariam is a young woman who has led the charge here in Connecticut in working with patients with sickle cell disease. And it's so interesting when we got into this. This is Sickle Cell Awareness Month. And I think that a lot of us don't have a true understanding of sickle cell anemia and the complications found in sickle cell disease. So she's going to talk with us, especially about what's being done here in Connecticut at the New England Sickle Cell Disease Institute at the University of Connecticut. So um, I hope you'll all be able to tune in for the entire interview with her. A few things in the news. We've all been hearing about eastern equine encephalitis. We talked about it a little bit on this program, but it's becoming a bigger problem than in previous years. Eastern equine encephalitis is a viral disease transmitted by mosquitoes. And We have had more mosquitoes carrying that viral illness in this season, this year, and we have had more people infected with that. The problem with Eastern equine encephalitis is just the word encephalitis. It affects the brain and the meninges surrounding the brain, causing inflammation. That will result in symptoms of severe headache, Sometimes seizures, nausea, vomiting, almost flu-like symptoms, but the headache is quite intense. And the diagnosis is made after spinal tap. Unfortunately, many people who contract this do pass on. So it's important to really avoid being bitten by mosquitoes. We're seeing that now with respect to the various sports activities. A couple of weeks ago, The Coast Guard Academy played in Massachusetts. They moved the start time up from 7 p.m. to 4 p.m. so that they could be finished before dusk. Same thing with football in East Lyme. They moved the time up. You don't want to leave yourself vulnerable to being bitten by mosquitoes who are infected in these endemic areas. And most of the areas have been in southeast Connecticut. The good thing is... This will all be gone with the first frost. So once we get that first deep frost, we won't be dealing with this issue any longer. The next thing, there's a new medication out called palforzia. 
Now, this is interesting. We just received FDA approval to effectively help people with a peanut allergy. This is something we see in children primarily. So a peanut allergy uh, is when someone is around peanuts, eats peanuts, something that touched peanuts, and developed an anaphylactic reaction, difficulty breathing, and often needing an EpiPen. So this new medication doesn't cure it, but it diminishes the symptoms that can be associated with exposure to peanuts if you have a peanut allergy. There are also some treatments now for young children where they gradually introduce peanuts into their diet. And by doing so, they build antibodies and avoid having this peanut allergy that many of us older folks didn't even know of and probably didn't exist back then. So again, we need to be mindful of the fact that we're living in a changing environment. Here's an interesting one. 78% of bicyclists in severe hel- in severe accidents did not wear helmets. Only 22% of bicyclists in severe accidents wore helmets. So here's the interesting thing. Wear a helmet. Okay? It diminishes your risk of being exposed and having a severe accident on a bicycle. Now, when we talk about severe accident, when the study was done, they really looked at this, and those were people who had to be admitted to the hospital over a period of time. They sustained severe injury, and they looked at this. This was interesting. This is from the National Trauma Data Bank, where they looked at 76,000 bicyclists who had sustained these injuries. So it becomes apparent that you diminish your risk of severe head trauma if you're wearing a bicycle helmet. I've said this before on the program, is young people tend to wear helmets, especially children, because we mandate it, and they're used to wearing helmets. The problem is older adults who think they're too old and don't need to wear it. There's a real problem there. As we get older, our brain gets smaller, more room for it to move around, in which case older people are even more vulnerable to these injuries and should be wearing a helmet if you're riding a bicycle. Keep that in mind as we move through the fall and get into fall cycling season. Finally, the governor and the commissioner for public health, Renee Coleman-Mitchell, have come out and voiced their support to repeal the vaccine exemption. So the religious exemption for vaccines they are supporting. She is the chief medical officer. She's in charge of public health, and her job is to head off emergencies, head off a crisis. So we're finally hearing from her. We've heard from all the physicians. So it becomes apparent that vaccine is a good thing. Vaccination and reducing the amount of measles is going to be a good thing in the long run. And people are going to have plenty of time to get used to this because it doesn't get implemented till October of 2021. So they have two years to get used to this and make arrangements for their children and their children's education. Next up, we're going to be chatting with Dr. Bari and Mariam. She is an associate professor of medicine at the University of Connecticut, and we're chatting about sickle cell disease. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WCIC News Talk 1080. 
We're back on Healthy Rounds. Um, today I have the honor of being with Dr. Bari Andamariam. Uh, Dr. Andamariam is an associate professor of medicine here at the University of Connecticut. She is a hematologist and director of the New England Sickle Cell Institute. As many of you know, this month has been uh, Sickle Cell Awareness Month, and we'd like to get a little bit more knowledge about sickle cell disease. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Alessi. Thank you for having me. So let's start with you. You're a hematologist. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your education and what hematology is? Sure. Um, well, I uh, grew up in Boston and uh, went to uh, Princeton University and then went to medical school at Tufts, also in Boston. Um, and then in order to become a hematologist, I had to do an internal medicine residency. I went to New York City for that. Um, I liked the city enough that I stayed there uh, to do my fellowship in hematology and oncology. And once completing my fellowship training, um, I decided to move to Connecticut and have been here ever since. Well, it's great to have you here. Uh, let's talk a little bit about sickle cell disease. Many of us probably older folks in, in medicine always knew it as sickle cell anemia, but it, it's changed, the, the term has changed a great deal. Is that because it encompasses so many different aspects of it? Right, right. So as a hematologist, I study all disorders of the blood and sickle cell disease or sickle cell anemia um, is actually one of the most common hereditary blood disorders around the world. Um, you're right. Uh, you, some people call it sickle cell anemia and some people call it sickle cell disease. Um, it was given its name initially uh, because number one, it causes anemia, which is a very low blood count. Um, and it's termed sickle cell because when uh, physicians uh, in this country, actually in Chicago, about 110 years ago, um, diagnosed the first patient um, in this country with sickle cell disease, they noticed that when they looked at his cells under the microscope, his blood cells under the microscope, that his red blood cells weren't round and plump and sort of donut shaped. Uh, they were crescent moon shaped. And if anybody's ever worked on a farm, they know that that looks like a farmer's tool called a sickle. Um, so you can call it either sickle cell anemia or sickle cell disease. It encompasses a lot of other problems that come from it, but was sickle cell an adaptation of some type at some point? In other words, why do people have sickle cells? How did that all come about? So um, we know that um, if you are a carrier of sickle cell trait, meaning that you carry the, the disease within your body, or at least um, you, ca you carry one copy um, of the gene that gives rise to sickle cell disease, that, that person has sickle cell trait. They don't have a disease, but they have the possibility of passing that gene onto a child. Uh, and if the person they have a child with also has sickle cell trait, then there's a possibility that 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 child could inherit two copies of the gene and therefore have sickle cell disease. So what we know is that individuals with sickle cell trait are less susceptible to malaria. And uh, sickle cell trait arose in areas of the world where malaria is most prevalent. And that would be in sub-Saharan Africa, in the Mediterranean basin, uh, in the Middle East um, and in this Indian subcontinent. So individuals from those parts of the world um, inherit and carry sickle cell trait at a very high frequency 
never have any manifestations of, a, of the disease because it's not a disease, but survive malaria infection, which is a common cause of death, particularly in children in those areas. So when does it become problematic? So sickle cell trait, for the most part, again, is just a carrier state that doesn't cause, for the most part, any complications. There are some very rare exceptions to that rule. Um, but sickle cell disease um, can cause very devastating complications in individuals who have it. Um, it wasn't until very recently uh, in the United States that children born with sickle cell disease were even expected to live until adulthood. However, with some advances in modern medicine over the last two to three decades, over 95% of American children born with sickle cell disease reach adulthood and live beyond. But the average age of death is still in the 40s. So it is a disease hallmarked by early mortality, even here in the Western world. The major manifestations of the disease have to do with how the uh, genetic change uh, in individuals with sickle cell disease affects the red blood cells. And what I mean by that is it affects uh, a substance inside the red blood cells called hemoglobin. And actually what a lot of people might not know is that red blood cells are essentially just big bags of hemoglobin. Uh, and their function is to circulate throughout the body and allow the hemoglobin within, within them uh, attached to oxygen. And as the red blood cells uh, travel through circulation, they're able to deliver oxygen to all of our organs so that each of our organs can carry out the necessary function. So what happens in somebody with sickle cell disease, they inherit a mutation or a change in DNA of that hemoglobin molecule. And instead of, instead of their cells being, like I said earlier, round and plump and easily deformable and able to get through the small spaces in our circulation so that they can deliver oxygen, these cells uh, change shape and become very stiff and sticky. So they're not able to get through circulation in the proper fashion and cause what, what one could consider a traffic jam. And where you have traffic jams of blood flow in the human body, you have uh, the development of pain, as well as the development of a low oxygen state, which can cause organ damage over time. So essentially every organ in the body in someone with sickle cell disease uh, can be, uh, can be um, harmed by the disease. So that's sort of an overview of the major manifestations of the disease. But I will tell you, if you ask somebody with sickle cell disease, what bothers them the most about having it? It's these intermittent, out of nowhere episodes of severe body pain that likely have to do with a major blockage of blood flow. So they have periodic severe body pain that often requires them to miss work or miss school um, and seek medical attention. Are we seeing more of it now? You, you said it's, it's the most common, commonly seen, but I know in athletes now we test everyone, right? It's become mandatory by the NCAA. Um, no matter what your descent is or heritage, you have to be tested. Are we identifying more people now because of programs like that with sickle trait and sickle cell disease who may not know they've had it? Yes, I, I agree with you. So uh, there are a number of reasons why, at least in this country, we're identifying more individuals with sickle cell trait and sickle cell disease. And that has to do with the fact that pretty much over the last 20 years, every single one of our 50 states mandates that every newborn independent of uh, country of origin, uh, is tested for both sickle cell trait and sickle cell disease. And I will tell you that in our state of Connecticut, sickle cell trait is the number one 
most commonly identified newborn screening genetic abnormality. Really? One in 60 babies born in Connecticut, independent of race or ethnicity, is born uh, and found to have sickle cell trait. Um, sickle cell disease itself is most common in individuals of African or Mediterranean or Middle Eastern or Indian um, descent. But I have several patients in my practice um, who are Italian or Greek or Turkish uh, or Saudi Arabian or Indian. Um, so, and um, very importantly, uh, a lot of Latinos uh, have sickle cell disease. So even though the majority of individuals that you'll meet with sickle cell disease or ever see are those who are black or brown, um, that is not exclusively the case. So we advocate for everyone um, uh, to be screened for sickle cell trait, particularly if they're still thinking about having children. Because as I said earlier, if you have sickle cell trait and you conceive a child who also has the trait, often unknowing that they have it, you can have a baby with sickle cell disease. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with Dr. Marie and Demarium here at the University of Connecticut. We're going to learn more about the New England Sickle Cell Institute. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds, and I'm chatting today with Dr. Marie and Demarium. Dr. Andemarium is a hematologist. And we're talking about sickle cell disease in honor of Sickle Cell Awareness Month. And uh, fascinating about the fact, I'm fascinated by the fact that sickle cell trait is so prominent here in Connecticut. Um, I would have thought more in inner cities um, and places where we see more immigration, for lack of a better term. Um, you know, and, and uh, being of Mediterranean descent, I'm familiar with thalassemia, mm-hmm. um, which we see as another adaptation. But whatever got you to want to go into studying sickle cell disease? Well, that's an interesting story. So I told you I arrived here from New York City. Yeah. And um, I will tell you that I hardly saw any patients living with sickle cell disease when I did my training there. Really? It's, it's amazing, but I think it happened to be the part of New York City I was training in. Um, and there just weren't a lot of individuals of these various backgrounds. I told you that. Are well, you were at New risk. York Presbyterian. So yes. were you at New York or Presbyterian? I was, uh, I was at New York on the Upper, okay. upper right. East Side. Yeah. Okay. So I got here to Connecticut and I really thought I was going to practice um, a different part of hematology. That was my plan. Um, and um, what I noticed was every time I rounded in the hospital on the inpatient um, uh, wards here, there were several young adults living with sickle cell disease who were always here. They were in pain and they were suffering from other complications associated with their disease. And they were here sometimes for weeks, sometimes months. And I realized that when they were discharged, they really weren't discharged to any particular follow-up with any particular physician. And I, you know, I studied more about that and I realized that wasn't just a Yukon problem. That was a statewide Connecticut problem, and that was a national American problem, where these adults with sickle cell disease were, were forgotten by the medical community, and that <clears throat> hematologists and oncologists who are the subspecialists who should be caring for this population, for some reason weren't. And I think part of that had to do with the fact that, again, like I said, 
these, when these adults were kids, they weren't expected to live into adulthood. So most adult hematologists in our country were never familiar with this population or this disease. Um, beyond that, I told you that the major manifestation of the disease um, that brings these patients to medical attention is pain. And as you probably all know, um, pain is very commonly treated with opioid prescriptions, and that's what we do for individuals with sickle cell disease. And as you also know, we're living in what we call an opioid crisis. And so individuals with sickle cell disease who are desperate for relief of this very severe pain um, are treated with opioids, and they've found it very difficult to access those opioids. And, you know, I think the medical community, if I can generalize here, has become much more suspicious about um, people who seek opioids. And so they really were caught in the crossfire, I think. So I think it's a, it's a complicated answer to a very good question. Um, but getting back to me, the reason I decided to, to, to specialize and focus all my energy um, in sickle cell disease is because of those few patients that were very young in their 20s who were really suffering and had no medical home to go to. So um, uh, I went to leadership here at, at UConn about 12 years ago. I was a young um, physician, and I told them I wanted to start a program. And to their credit, they said, go ahead. They gave me the green light. There weren't any resources uh, with, uh, with that yeah, green well, light. That's, but, that's you know, the green light. Yeah, but they said, if this is what you want to do and you want to recruit these patients to come and follow up with you in the cancer center, which is where I was seeing patients, do it. And if you want to go out there into the community, which I did, and find other adults living with sickle cell disease who had nowhere to go, find them. And so between 2009 and, and here we are 10 years later, uh, we went from having those five or six young adults with sickle cell disease who were frequenting our hospital but had no medical home to now over 300 adults with sickle cell disease. We are the largest adult sickle cell program in New England, and that's why we call ourselves the New England Sickle Cell Institute, and we are one of the largest adult programs in the entire country. Um, we really, in many ways, um, number one, have done a major service for this underserved uh, and forgotten population, and number two, we are really helping to put this fine institution, Yukon Health Center, on the map in a national and even a global way. I have to tell you, I didn't just stumble on this interview. You're very well known because of this institute for a lot of reasons, not only for the population you help, but also you've relieved another crisis, the crisis of the emergency department, right? Because yes. these patients would be tying up an emergency department, waiting in an emergency department for treatment with pain, and now they have a place to go. Yes. And that's how everybody knows you, okay, because you've gotten them out of trouble. But let's go back to the opioid thing, because if you're a physician and you write for opiates, okay, you're immediately under suspect by 10 different agencies. How are we getting around that? I mean, how do you get around that here in terms of being able to without recrimination, for lack of a better term? Right. I think it comes down to education. And that's a big part of what I and, and, and the, the individuals that I've recruited to the center to work here do. It's educating our colleagues in medicine. It's educating our nursing colleagues who are highly influential in, in the treatment process of any patient, particularly in sure. the emergency department. And it's educating administrators, um, those who um, make decisions regarding 
uh, maximal quantities of opioids that can be prescribed to patients. That's not only at the state level, particularly uh, on the payer side, um, but even on the national level, uh, I will tell you that the Centers for Disease Control, which is um, uh, its headquarters is in Atlanta, many of you are familiar with it, they, um, they wrote um, a guideline uh, about three years ago, a national guideline on, on opioid prescribing. And they made recommendations on the maximum amount of uh, morphine equivalents that any one person should be prescribed for chronic pain. And I, I will tell you in reading that, that I believe, that particular document um, gave license, for lack of a better term, for physicians who are already skeptical of this population to say, well, the, uh, my hands are tied. I can't give you more uh, than, th- than this for your excruciating pain. And, and these patients were literally caught in the crossfire of a major national opioid epidemic that had nothing to do with them. If you look at the data and you look at the literature, um, the opioid uh, overprescribing and the opioid-related deaths, sickle cell patients do not contribute to that phenomenon at all. And I will also tell you that I feel very strongly, and this is what I educate folks about, these patients are living with this horrible disease for which we have no universal cure. We have no fully adequate treatments that take these pain episodes away. They are dependent upon us to treat these severe pain episodes. We treat them with opioids. They didn't ask for them when they were children. That's what we gave them. And as they've gotten older and older, because they're living longer, they're becoming more tolerant to the same low opioid doses, and they need more and more and more to get the same effect. They're not addicted. They're not drug-seeking. And I will tell you, they are not likely to be selling them on the street. All these things that come along with uh, opioids, they simply want treatment for their pain. Uh, And until we have something better to offer them, we should give them what they need. It's great uh, thought as far as uh, when it comes to opioids. We're going to take another short break. Then we're going to be back here because we want to talk a little bit more about how are we treating patients with sickle cell disease? Why are they living longer? We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. I'm back with Dr. Barry Andamarium here at the University of Connecticut and the New England Sickle Cell Institute. Uh, Barry, we've talked about opioids, but there are other treatments because people with sickle cell disease are living longer. You know, it comes to mind because I do some work in Haiti, and we obviously see people with sickle cell disease who do not have access um, to all the treatment available here in this country. Um, So can you share with our listeners what we're doing here to help people with sickle cell disease to live longer? Yeah, I I think that um, you're absolutely right. In other parts of the world, uh, 50% of children with sickle cell disease don't live until their fifth birthday. So it's a very different disease here. And I'll tell you why. Well, first of all, in children, um, uh, we know that one of the most common causes of death um, is infection. So every child born with sickle cell disease is put on prophylactic penicillin until the age of five. And that prevents, wow, that that. prevents um, death uh, associated with widespread infection from pneumococcus. Wow. Um, we also know that um, in children, 
uh, up until very recently, um, sickle cell disease was the most common cause of stroke in children. Um, and the reason it's no longer the most common cause of stroke in children is because all kids with sickle cell disease are screened for stroke uh, from the age of two until 16. And if they're found to be at high risk for stroke, they're put on um, regular blood transfusions every month for life. And that will prevent a stroke. If for some reason someone has a stroke, even in adulthood, um, we put them on blood transfusions to prevent any further strokes. So we use, um, we use antibiotics, um, we use blood transfusions as part of our um, treatment plan for individuals with sickle cell disease. Um, we also try to prevent episodes of pain, these, these major manifestations of the disease that I described, by giving them uh, two FDA-approved medications. Um, one is called hydroxyurea and one is called L-glutamine. Uh, these are very good drugs, um, but they don't get rid of the pain entirely. They may reduce the frequency of these pain episodes by anywhere from 25% to 50%. So that means if you're hospitalized uh, for pain on average four times per year with your sickle cell disease, you may get down to two or three hospitalizations. So they're not good enough. But I will tell you that there is a cure uh, for sickle cell disease. It's bone marrow transplantation. Um, and uh, the problem, though, is that it's not what we call a universal cure because most individuals with sickle cell disease do not have a suitable donor that matches them. Uh, a person with sickle cell disease in this country is uh, only 20% as likely uh, as um, uh, a white American uh, to have a suitable donor that matches them. Yeah, so it's it's so very few individuals with sickle cell disease will get a curative bone marrow transplant. But I will tell you that here at UConn Health Center, uh, we are really leading the charge in the state in terms of clinical trials for sickle cell disease. Um, we are very proud because as far as we know, and I have this on good order, uh, we are the first um, center to uh, dose an adult with sickle cell disease on a clinical trial. We did this last year in 2018. Uh, we have a phase two clinical trial that's looking at uh, a new medication that can improve blood flow and reduce these pain episodes, hopefully more than the standard drugs. You took my last question away. <laughs> my last question, as always, is what are we going to learn more in the future? And it sounds like um, that's actually being done here. It's being done here. Um, we're not the only ones. Uh, the good thing is that there is um, unprecedented interest in researchers, in um, pharmaceutical industry right now, in identifying new treatments and cures for sickle cell disease. So I think you'll see more and more. Um, gene therapy is coming down the, the, the pike very quickly. Um, and I think hopefully in my lifetime, we will be able to cure people with sickle cell disease with gene therapy. What's the one thing in closing that uh, someone that's the lay person listening to this show should know about sickle cell disease? Well, um, I think that what people should know about sickle cell disease is that it can run in your family and you don't know. I see more and more people um, who are diagnosed with sickle cell trait um, that um, would never have believed that it ran in their family. And if we're gonna do education and awareness about this disease, 
um, in a sense, it could be a preventable disease because it's genetic and, it's, and it's, it's passed down. So I think if people were more aware about their sickle cell trait status, um, they could make informed decisions um, about their reproductive health. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time. And more importantly, thanks for all your work here at the New England Sickle Cell Institute. Thank you very much. I truly enjoyed the time I spent with Dr. Andamarium going over that interview and chatting with her. It was one of those interviews that I truly learned something from. So it was uh, great, and I, I hope you all have learned something from that about sickle cell disease, especially how it pertains here in Connecticut and how Connecticut have become a leading state in terms of taking action on this problem. Many thanks to our studio producer, Mike Olkel. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. If you missed any part of today's program, just download the Healthy Rounds podcast. You could do that from iTunes. Next up on WTIC is Garden Talk with Len. Please remember to help save lives. You can do that today by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Just go to registerme.org. Until next week, please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, MD Advantage, UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.